Hello listeners and welcome to the podcast series of the British Academy of Jewelry. I'm Sophie Boons and today I have invited another guest to join me in a discussion on a number of very current and exciting topics. We live in a material world. We are surrounded by countless materials and new materials are developed to bespoke specifications for a range of industries. This in addition to the rise of smart adornments, the main example being the smartwatch, which collects digital data of our bodies in order to support healthier lifestyles, for example. So where are we going from here? With Boucheron incorporating Arrogel, the world's lightest material, in a necklace as part of their latest collection called Contemplation, and digital components getting smaller every day, what does our future jewelry look like? To discuss these ideas, I have invited jewelry designer, researcher, and lecturer, Dr. Katharina Vones. Welcome, Katharina. Hello, lovely to see you, Sophie. Kathy, can you tell us a little about yourself and what you do? So um, I'm, um, I started my life in the art world as a jewellery designer, a contemporary jeweller, um, and I've always been fascinated with materials. Uh, so I did my undergraduate degree in Edinburgh, College of Art, and um, at that point I started experimenting. Um, I really loved working with metal, and that's always been a big part of my practice, but I started using silicon towards the end of my undergraduate degree and once I started doing that I just I was just hooked on on developing jewelry that lives and comes alive on the body in some way and that was um, in 2006 and it, since then basically I've been obsessed with materials and making things that that come alive in some way even back then I was thinking about electronics quite a bit but I had no knowledge or skills in that area so yeah the the next 10 years more or less were spent trying to find out what ways I could get these skills and how I could use them in jewellery. Um, I'm currently a lecturer at the University of Dundee. I just started a year ago and um, I'm also a researcher and I'm also really interested in sustainability now. I think that's that's something that has to become a bigger part of our lives in the long run, and growing things. And I think these things all kind of interlink with each other. A little bit about me. <laughs> so you are a researcher, lecturer in jewelry and metal design at the University of Dundee, which you mentioned. What made you decide to become a jeweler in the first place? Um, so when I started at art college, I was going to be a printed textile designer. That was what I had done at school um, for my A-level. I'd done quite a lot of printed textiles. My school had a very strong background in that. So I applied to art colleges and uh, I ended up in Edinburgh and doing the foundation year because at the end of the day, I felt I hadn't really tried enough yet. And Edinburgh had that very open structure at that point where you could do a general first year course and try out lots of different things. So, um, and I think I think as a designer, there's always, or as an artist in general, there's always a little sort of uncertainty. Is this the right thing I've chosen? Um, and I and, and I ended up doing jewelry as an elective because my uh, friend's brother was a, was doing it. He was studying in Kent at the time. He said to me, "Oh yeah, Edinburgh, that's got a great jewelry department. You should try it." And I said, "Well, okay then, I'll do that." And um, yeah, the minute I started working with metal, I was hooked. That was just a complete, I, I think that the way that material works, the scale of jewelry, everything just fell into place. And that's when I decided to specialize. Do you think that your background in another discipline or more mixed discipline perhaps 
actually benefited your career later on? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I did a whole other degree before I did my art degree, something which would now sadly be very, very difficult for a lot of people to do, you know. And, and at the time it was only possible because, of course, we were lucky and we didn't have the tuition fees, so or the very low tuition fees then in the end. And um, so I think everything that I've done in my life has contributed to my career now. So my first degree was in English literature and management. Um, these were both things that I've used extensively, you know, the writing, learning how to write is very important as a designer, even just from your artist statement to down to everything uh, you do in research, writing papers, doing my PhD, that's those skills have been used a lot in my career. And then, of course, the management side of things, selling your work, um, thinking about your target audience, uh, even something as mundane as doing your accounting, that's really contributed to everything. So. I, th I think if you're an artist or designer, everything you learn will come in handy at some point. So I still have a very um, extensive interest in photography and I'm using that in my research now and in my work as an inspiration, but I'm really passionate about it. It's not just, I'm not just pointing a camera. I'm actually really getting into it and I enjoy that, that way of learning. You completed a PhD, you mentioned it already. Can you tell all the listeners what that research was specifically about? I started out in the PhD knowing that I wanted to look into smart materials. Um, that was something I'd sort of encountered first at the end of my undergraduate degree and then um, a little bit at the Royal College. I was always quite keen to get a collaboration going there with the Imperial College, but it was very hard to get into those labs. <laughs> I know, they guard them. I know, it's very intimidating as well. And I think that can be a really big problem for designers working with scientists. The scientists speak a different language. They have all sorts of scary looking equipment and they're not always so happy for you to come in when trying to play with all the equipment and of course that's what I wanted to do most just get my hands on uh, on some piece of exciting kit and try different things that maybe they hadn't tried before but um, so yeah and and that's something I'm still trying to do actually here at Dundee which is you know actually a really fantastic place for that kind of thing because we've got the School of Life Sciences um, very close by the Art College and um, the School of Engineering as well and we used to be the colleges of art, science and engineering. So I think all these disciplines are so linked. And, and a lot of that has come into my research, looking into alchemy and the alchemists and the traditions of sharing that knowledge that we gain through handling things and doing things and, and really thinking about science in a slightly different way than, than maybe what we're taught at school. Could you tell us a little bit more about the actual pieces you made during your PhD as well? Sure. I mean, so basically the outcome of my PhD was a collection of pieces that incorporated microelectronics and smart materials in a meaningful way. It, it was all about finding ways in which to, I suppose, disguise the electronics and make them seem more a part of the piece rather than, than something that's sort of extraneous to them or purely functional. So you could play with the pieces and they would react in some way. And that, that was the challenge, really. And I mean, with jewellery, you've got the restrictions of scale and uh, the pieces are probably going to move around a lot on the body. So they need to be reasonably robust. And um, with electronics, you've got the difficulty of connectors and strain on wires and um, things going wrong. And, and, and for me, actually, there was also an element of not wanting to fully embed things like the battery. Um, so that was quite important to me in terms of sustainability 
that you could access the electronics, that they would be repairable, or that you could put new electronics in if you know you wanted maybe to change the function of the piece. So, um, without it seeming just like a vessel, uh, and and all these kind of elements, I hope I addressed in my final collection. I think it's a very impressive project, and in particular also the website you have launched as part of the PhD, I believe, and still have kept up to date until relatively recently. Actually, is a really really brilliant resource for other researchers. I think as well. You know, hopefully I'll find a bit more time to expand my blog again now that I'm you know things are kind of from working from home a bit more so but yeah that was always my intention that it would be more accessible to others um, what I'm doing and and that they could do and build on that you mentioned it before there are sorts of barriers with potentially collaborating and you also had to acquire a range of skills and knowledge that weren't necessarily part of your previous education how did you approach this and overcome these barriers? Well, so at the time when I started my PhD in 2012, I literally knew nothing about electronics at all. And, and it was just as Arduino was becoming a thing. So I think a lot has happened since then. A lot has been done in a lot of progress has been made in the right direction. Um, what hasn't happened as much is maybe that the, the, the needs of jewelry designers haven't really been addressed in the same way. But I mean, when I started working with electronics, I had to even soldering, you know, we do a lot of soldering as jewelers and that's fantastic training in terms of knowing how the process works, but it's completely different to solder with a soldering iron and on, on a PCB than it is actually to, to use your torch and, and do the type of soldering we do in jewelry. But, but the principle is the same. You're, you're trying to heat two surfaces to the same temperature and making the solder flow. So, so I suppose those skills are quite interchangeable. And, and a lot of my PhD was dedicated as well to to finding commonalities between those kinds of processes. How can we use the skills that we have as jewelers in electronics to maybe make more inter interesting electronics? And um, I suppose the first person that uh, really taught me about that was Leon Williams at the Royal College of Art. I don't know if you've seen his work. Uh, he ran a class which was a sort of a technical class for CAD. What he made us do was he made us put together a computer, new computers for the department. The department had got some money and he'd bought all the components and there were about five of us putting together these new PCs. And um, even that sort of thing, actually interacting with electronics in that way and discovering, oh, it, it's just like Lego and I can do this and I could do this. That was hugely empowering. And from there on, it didn't seem that much of a leap of faith to go online and look for YouTube videos and, and, and maybe hit up technicians in other departments, go, can you show me how to do that? Can you teach me a little bit of programming? And there's a lot of resources out there that you, you can access now. And that's, that's the great beauty of our age, actually, this wealth of information at your fingertips, if you dare. If you dare, and 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 now actually, it's it's fantastic. I, I'm I'm a real believer into fixing things in you know electronics and um, household appliances. I'm I'm happy to rip anything open now. You know, if it's not working anymore, I had an ancient cassette deck. I, that wouldn't even have occurred to me ten years ago or twenty years ago. But actually, all it was was the, the little rubber band had had failed. It was just old, and uh, a new little rubber band for whatever tw ten pence the whole thing works again. So I think people are quite quick to throw things out because, oh, electronics, you know, but you can open things and look inside and, 
and fix them. And there needs to be more of that kind of thing going on, I think, in education and um, even at school level, that, that sort of reverence that we have. And and again, that's that's maybe kind of with the Apple computers and 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 on all these very slick-looking devices, you can't open them, and that really gets to me, especially now when we have a real duty to make things last. But it's true. We should we should know more about these things so that we are able to re use the tools that we get used to yeah but also even the fact that you can change the screen yourself that you can build yourself a better computer than you might be able to buy and for less money that's that's a really useful thing if you're self-employed and freelance and or a student and you need to make things work for as long as possible and i i just got a new computer and i got to the royal college and and I made that last till last year, so that was over tw- eleven years. And I, you know, I gutted the thing twice and put in new components and more memory, a bigger hard drive. But but suddenly, you know, you can make a machine last a very long time that way. That's not what they would like us to believe. No, no, this is the consumerist approach, isn't it? I know, and but that's that's the thing is, uh, as a craftsperson, and I like the word craftsperson. I like the word maker because. That's at the heart of what we do where, you know, I'm a researcher, I'm an academic, I'm a designer, I'm an artist, but I'm also a maker. And that's, that's, that's at the essence. And what I make can, that may change over time. My interests in might turn this way or that way, but it's a, it's a mindset, isn't it? If you're a craftsperson, you, you kind of make things and that makes you happy. <laughs> Exactly. This is certainly true for me. And I guess with an interest in making also comes an interest in materials. You have also published a very interesting article in the Journal for Jewelry Research titled Material Libraries, a Jeweler's Perspective. Could you tell us what made you look into this topic and what the article is exploring? So basically, when I started my PhD, um, one of the biggest barriers to actually doing the research was how do I even find out what these materials are that I'd read a lot about smart materials. And um, again, they've become a lot more available over the last few years than they were maybe then, as more and more people have started working with them. So the, the demand has driven the availability up, which is fantastic. But at the time, I didn't really know where to find them and I, I didn't just want to read about them I wanted to touch them and play with them and use them and so I heard about this concept of materials libraries and I thought I should go and visit some so materials libraries are just basically places where materials are collected by um, enthusiasts sometimes material scientists there's there's all sorts of different ones and in a way it's it's almost like a, a point in time I think a lot of them still exist and others have sadly closed down but I started with visiting the ones that I could access so I'm from Germany originally and um, from Cologne so one of the first ones I went to visit was the one in Amsterdam because that was only two hours on the train but it was fantastic just actually being in the space and it was a beautiful space, uh, Materia is called. All these libraries were fantastic spaces and, and, and they were all very different kinds of libraries. I went to visit a few in Paris, I went to visit a few in London and every library had a different focus, every space was different, the, the ethos was very different, all the collections. It, it was just fantastic but um, 
now I think the universities have started setting up materials libraries for their own students and there's some services where you can sort of import the library into your university and then they, they give you new materials all the time which is quite nice so but yes what a, what a fantastic thing to to do. In the conclusion of the article you say for the average contemporary jury practitioner without academic or commercial affiliation material libraries thus remain a fascinating proposition with limited practical value. Can you expand on this a little bit? You know, should contemporary jewelry designers and, and artists visit material libraries? And if so, what should be their sort of realistic expectations? So uh, what I found a lot was the barriers to entry are huge. So I think the one in Amsterdam stood out as one that was actually very openly accessible. And I believe they have taken that onto a roadshow model now to be premiered at different trade fairs and pop-up events. Uh, so I think that was a really nice example of that. But others uh, for instance, the one in London has uh, has open days, so that's very nice. And I think it's definitely worth for any designer, jewellery or non, but of course also jewellery, uh, to go and visit. And they run really interesting workshops, very exciting workshops where you can sort of grow these huge carbon structures. And But they're extremely um, rare. And I think that's sadly with the current situation is going to increase a lot. Um, I think when I initially, started looking at materials libraries my expectation was that I would be able to go there and they would be able to put me in touch with someone to supply me with a sample for instance but that's not how it works what they do is they give you the contact details but often the contact details that you're being given are for maybe um, a, you know a receptionist or I'm sure the, the same thing could be achieved by just going to their website a lot of the time so I thought it would be a little bit more about sharing these materials with people but it's really more about I suppose showing samples and then enabling designers to decide whether that's a, a sort of a, maybe a material they want to investigate more but a lot of the legwork and a lot of the the effort of contacting the right people and finding out who the right people are is still the onus is still on you as it were and and a lot of the materials i visited uh, only allowed me access because i was a researcher um, if i had just been an individual designer that probably wouldn't have happened just we're not the target audience for for them yet sadly so i think these barriers to entries are there and that's maybe something to be aware of especially when you look into which ones you might want to visit there are some that are and again that that might have changed now after the the coronavirus crisis but there were some in london that were sort of part of part of some th companies that had set up showrooms um, but then focused very specifically on a particular material they're really great and a lot of them have really nice websites actually that you can access for free and that is helpful even to find the manufacturers of certain materials that you might be finding interesting uh, there was a fantastic one in Clarkenville what what is really great space but again that closed down uh, after a few years it's, it's just kind of balancing the educational aspect of something like that and and the one in London in Clarkenwell that I visited that had a completely open access policy and they let me do just about anything in there which was fantastic uh, you handle samples I had a bit of hydrogel that they let me immerse in water to see if it swells up and it did which you know is that's the sort of ethos I was hoping to find um, but sadly it's always balancing that with the undoubtedly huge running and staffing costs and and finding ways to generate an income 
and with materials libraries that can be the tricky part so ultimately i can see a place for them in research institutions and universities but that will restrict who can use them and how they can be used what are the strengths you think of a materials library for any sort of institution to have them um, just i think the ones that i found the most interesting were the ones with the, the the rare materials the exciting maybe not immediately obviously useful materials i think there were some that i visited that you know, there was one that that specialized in wood and that had some very interesting aspects of sustainability incorporated in their display and uh, and it was quite interesting just seeing the way in which samples are displayed in different libraries but I, for me the ones that were maybe a little bit crazier were the more exciting ones like a treasure trove of materials and you're just waiting to find the right one you touched upon it sort of the sustainability credentials of certain materials companies don't have to publish this information so it'd be amazing if material libraries would sort of do some of that investigation but like you say it's just really tricky to to be able to finance that's something maybe the government could support and of course we had the I don't know if that's still there, but the one in the Glasgow Lighthouse Gallery, um, and that had a, a very strong focus on construction materials and sustainability. And um, I think a lot of the libraries are built for a particular audience of particular kinds of designers, architects uh, being a big target group, but also maybe product designers looking to find something that, you know, a material that they can put in the next trainer and, and and maybe someone from Boucheron went went to visit the you know the the library in London and saw the aerogel which I think they, I saw that material at two libraries one in France the one in Paris had that as well so maybe Boucheron Paris I I could see that I could see them going in there and seeing this material and thinking that's a very cool material and then having the the clout to go and and approach NASA and go well you know we want to use this aerogel and how much you know how many tons can we have and for us as jewelry designers the durability of some of these materials and the way in which we could potentially incorporate them into things that are worn on the body is limited you know i mean aerogel is a very brittle material it's um, it's a material that discolors when you touch it a lot there are reasons why the materials we use in jewelry are used for this purpose, but it is then is up to us as designers to figure out better ways to do it, I guess, or more interesting ways. That's a really good point, actually. You know, it can be really fun to use a new material, but does it really add anything to your design and does it really perform in the function that you are giving it in the piece of jewelry? And then you're maybe more into the conceptual arena of um, pieces that are literally just for for a moment, for the moment and a proof of concept. and. Yeah, I mean, there were some materials that I thought were really exciting, but there was one material I wanted to use, but it had to be immersed in water to to work. So how do you, you know, how do you do that? And how does that give the, a piece longevity? And that's in the, in the end, that's why I went for my PhD research, Go, going back to the silicon, but also using the thermochromics and the photochromics, because even these materials have a lifespan. They, they don't work forever they they will eventually die but i felt that kind of tied in really nicely with narrative i have a follow-up question on sort of the communication and collaboration between art and science why do you think it's important artists and scientists collaborate and you were talking about barriers and overcoming barriers 
how do you think an artist can approach a company like a materials company talking to scientists or material scientists in, in order to explain what the benefit would also be for, for them potentially? I think scientists have a often have a very particular outcome in mind when they when they look at a material and evaluate its usefulness and I think the perspective that artists can offer in that way maybe thinking outside the box a little bit or pointing in a future direction um, that's the, the one thing I think where we can really come together and make a difference and offering that different point of view and in, in a way back back when the alchemists were were working that was that was the big thing they came together craftsmen craftspeople coming together from all sorts of different disciplines and and finding new things um, about materials and about chemistry ultimately and yeah we we maybe need to take a step back and go back in that direction a little bit and add that excitement again and I think uh, what I've definitely learned about collaborations in the past is that it's uh, it's got to be a very personal thing and the people who are collaborating together need to be the right fit and um, that is the hardest part of it because sometimes you will see something interesting but it you know you may not really enjoy working together then then that is a barrier and in itself and we are human we are people trying to to figure these things out together i suppose i just wanted to say about collaboration that maybe it's if you find the right person, there are some people who have found the right person. It can be fantastic. It can be the best thing that can happen to you. Just that change of ideas and that the, the, the dynamic interactions that develop from that. But it's hard to find that right person, I think. You have also been part of a project focusing on developing interactive, playful wearables that can be used in health and well-being context from sustainably produced and smart materials. The project which I read was funded through the EU as part of the Horizon 2020 Wear Sustain initiative, explored the potential of these new materials and using them to inspire new work. Can you tell us a little bit more about this project? It was basically um, a really interesting project. I collaborated with an engineer, Dr. Lord Alves, and um, we were trying to develop wearables that would basically help autistic children in a therapeutic environment. A person can seem very calm outwardly, but inwardly their heart rate is going up, they're, they're getting agitated. And we were looking into how electronics um, and more particularly sensors could be used to detect these changes. Um, and then that change could be reflected, for instance, through activating a color change circuit in the in the actual jewelry they're wearing so that was a really exciting project um, we used some um, pla which is a biodegradable plastic and um, 3d printing to really um, sort of focus the the make make a make a piece that really incorporates the senses um, in, inside it again going back to hiding the electronics um, especially for that target group and and the, the silicon shapes I think were, were sort of quite interesting for them to touch we based it on marine forms um, as something comforting but I think that's that's still even though um, we arrived at the prototype I think there's still a lot to be done with that project so I'm still hoping to expand on it and a lot more research it's the, the end of the project sort of coincided with my move to Dundee so we never we, we, we did the, the sort of first field tests with the prototype, um, but then 
life happened, so to speak. So I'm, I'm hoping to come back to that in the future. It sounded an incredible project from all angles, the idea of the materials that you were using and really thinking about recycling in there as well. And then at the same time to have a specific audience that had a need for for a new object to be created. I think this is something we sometimes lose sight of that there are actually objects we can create that really can help other people from a medical point of view. But that was another project where we came up against sort of just practical issues with the size of the sensors that um, Lord would have liked to use and then having to change the plan just because of the, the scale of the jewellery, you know, and, and the piece we did, we did end up producing and, and testing out was actually quite a large piece. So I would hope to make that a bit more uh, streamlined in the future again maybe also scale it down especially for that target audience and 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 make it more robust in terms of its use but yes these are all considerations and maybe um, sometimes when you're training to be a jewelry designer a lot of focus is on the aesthetics but maybe not enough on the wearability and the materiality so actually a, a, a sort of in-between, in-between practicality and aesthetics, that's where the ideal piece lies. Yeah, for me anyway. <laughs> Within our context today, which obviously has forced a stark increase of digital tools and is forcing us to confront the realities of environmental change as well, what are your reflections on the materiality of jewellery and the future of digital smart artefacts? At one point, I thought maybe we would implant more things into our bodies and and really change our bodies. Um, now I'm not so sure because I think people have become so much more sensitive to that, especially in the last year. What happens to their bodies, listening to their bodies and, and looking out for signs of illness is now something that everyone does every day. And it's in a way that it wasn't before. And maybe jewellery can help there. I'm, I'm not sure where it's all going to go, especially when you're thinking, and, and various projects I've done in the last few years have made me think more about sustainability and what that means in terms of jewellery design. It's something that my students are very interested in. We, we're part of the ethical pledge um, of the incorporation of goldsmiths here in Scotland. Uh, so we, we try to use um, recycled silver and uh, whenever we can. Uh, ethically sourced silver, I should say, and fair trade. It, it is a tricky one. It's tricky. We, we Can we keep taking the resources of the, the earth without consequence? Maybe making things that are meaningful or more meaningful to us and keeping them for longer. But also, it, it, it is such a nuanced discussion. And I think with sustainability, you find that in every aspect of it, there's a positive and a negative every material has its advantages and disadvantages every process how how do we decide how do we decide and that is maybe the big question that's facing us in the future certainly the um, the, the the environment i saw here in scotland in some places has made me think that maybe we need to act whatever that means yeah absolutely in your ongoing research have you seen sort of any other pioneering artists or designers whose work do you think is of particular relevance today that people should be looking at and i absolutely love Neri oxman's work 
Um, I think all the, the uh, her whole group and her just fantastic research that's going on there, really interesting things, uh, and, and and very open ended. So some things are developed and there isn't a real purpose for them necessarily. So that might be a good starting point. I know there's a a sort of quite esoteric documentary on Netflix um, that that covers her her work, which I think would be a good starting point for anyone to get into this um, topic. Uh, of course, Mark Miodovnik has done so much to change our perception of materials. Very exciting. Because of the material experience, certain materials evoke certain responses from us that are even potentially subconscious. And this you mentioned this in your paper as well. Yeah. I think I found out a lot when working with silicon actually have you know having done things like the goldsmith fair and and having sold my work directly to the public which I think every designer should do at some point um just to get an idea of what what their work is really all about from from the audience that they're targeting and I certainly noticed that some people were very excited to touch the material, the silicon, to play with it, to to to, to make an indent and to see it pop back up. Uh, but then others were completely repulsed, couldn't even go near my stand without feeling repulsion. So I, I think that was maybe my first encounter with sensuoesthetic qualities and, and very strong reactions. Kathy, what's next for you or what are you going to be focusing on or are you focusing on at the moment? Top secret. <laughs> I, I I think I'm just continuing to develop my work. Um, I want to make even smaller electronics to go into pieces. And there's still a lot of things that I did in my PhD that aren't explored fully yet and that I'm still working on. Again, using different materials. Materials is going to be what I'll focus on for probably for the rest of my life, and but also it may be finding that sense of making again that can go by the wayside a little bit when you're a researcher, you're busy teaching, you're busy writing, and then um, that time in the studio is so precious. And uh, hopefully, I'll get a bit more of that again. New materials can be an inspiration, and with the sharp uptake of digital tools in our current context, it isn't unimaginable jewelry will keep evolving. Visiting a materials library for browsing and inspiration might open your horizon to new possibilities, but it is the collaboration between material scientists and contemporary jurors that could also hold opportunities for innovation. Finally, I'd also like to say that new materials and digital jewelry is exciting, but thinking about recycling and reducing our impact on the environment is certainly also crucial whenever anything new is made. For now, I would like to say thank you to Cathy Bones who joined me for this very thought-provoking discussion. Thank you, Cathy, very much for your time. Thank you for having me, Sophie. No, that was fantastic. <laughs> Uh, next month, I'll be joined by another guest to watch this space to find out who it is. For now, this was Sophie Boons for the BAJ podcast, Smart Jewelry and Materiality with Dr. Katharina Bones. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.